Welcome to ASP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I am an ASCP Certified Clinical Laboratory Scientist, and I work in the Publications Department here at ASCP. So um, today we're going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and wellness concepts kind of surrounding that. Uh, We've got some great guests lined up, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Dana Baker. I'm assistant professor with the Department of Clinical Laboratory Sciences in the School of Health Professions. Good morning. I'm Dr. Melissa Upton. I'm a pathologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, currently experiencing flooding rains today. And I'm also the chair of the ASCP Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. I use she, her pronouns. I'm so happy to be with you today. Good morning. I'm Dr. Daryl Elsey. I'm with Centera Healthcare. I'm a medical technologist. I'm a psychologist. I'm also on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. And I am very, very happy to be here with my colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we get started, I just need to do some housekeeping. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So yeah, thanks again for joining us. I'm really looking forward to this topic. And I guess, first off, I want to kick things off by asking you why paying attention to wellness is an essential part of any program intended to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion. I like the word wellness because it has, what I say, a holistic connotation to it. So we talked about, especially in some of our earlier classes, uh, about how wellness is uh, the complete person. We talk about your financial, your occupational, your home life, your, your your play life, all of that together, coming together and having that balance so that we, what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to be, have a happy individual. That does not mean that you're not going to have, you know, you're going to have negative times, but you have that built-in resilience to go through whatever you need to go through. You have those coping mechanisms to, to make it. So and this is what we're talking about. But that diversity, equity, inclusion, that uh, a lot of that... We focus on our work aspects, but that's also in our life aspects. Some of those things that we're learning, uh, I've learned as I've explored and become exposed to new things about how our interactions with a lot of our marginalized communities, our LGBTQ plus community, we have those same people that we work with. Those are the same type of people that we live with. So if we can take some of those lessons that we learn some of those truisms that we see that are fact and expand that to our entire life that gets us toward having that wellness so that is a smooth transition. We may learn these lessons around work. We can carry those into our personal lives. And in the same way, we take those from our personal lives and then inject them into our work interactions that we have with our fellow human beings. So diversity, equity, inclusion has also that other aspect, I feel, especially for equity, when we're talking about justice, that means we have to look at the historical, the history of our nation, the history of our peoples, and how we have interacted, how we've gotten to this point. And we say, hey, 
that these communities have experienced some injustices. So let us come or develop and formulate some uh, initiatives to address those, to help those, to help them raise up. Because once we raise everybody up, everybody becomes empowered. And I believe it's a, a benefit for the whole nation. Dana or Melissa, any other thoughts? I really liked the way that Daryl put things in historical perspective. I've never worked in a workplace in pathology or laboratory medicine that did not have at least one or two individuals in the lab at any given time who had family in a war zone or who were in an area where, who had come from an area that was affected by an earthquake or a typhoon. And these events have an enormous impact on that individual worker on a day-to-day basis. But if we're blind to that and we don't integrate our concern and our empathy for what our staff are going through and what our colleagues are going through, we're just addressing a really tiny part of their work performance and their ability to thrive. And these things add up. And people from historically excluded populations have many more of these burdens than white privileged people like myself. And this is a really important element of overall thriving, not just for the individual worker, but for our whole work culture, the creativity that we're able to bring to work. We can't do that if we're fighting and dealing with all kinds of unseen health traumas off the radar screen of our leaders in our workforce areas. So I think it's critically important. Otherwise, we're just losing sight of the major forces that are limiting our ability to really move forward creatively, energetically, facing the future with great ideas. Yeah, I would agree. It kind of goes back to that whole, you know, we can't know where we're going unless we know where we've been. And really looking at not just, you know, history as a nation, but also historically as a profession. You know, our profession hasn't always been integrated. Our profession is still undergoing, I would say, shifts and changes as we look at um, diversity within the laboratory, diversity among pathology um, professionals. And so as we are, you know, really getting to know each other and getting to know each other's backgrounds and getting to know each other's history, you know, how does that all blend into wellness? How does that all lead into how we all view wellness? You know, I think as we have more discussions such as this one, we'll learn that, you know, everyone doesn't have that same view, perception, or access when it comes to, you know, coping mechanisms or what wellness should look like. And holistically, what does that look like for me as an individual? And, you know, what is the source of my happy? You know, am I the source of my happiness? You know, am I looking to other people for that happiness or to bring wellness to me? Or is that my uh, responsibility? Or is it a social or civic responsibility to look out for each other in that regard to ensure that we're all doing well? And so I think um, it encompasses so many more levels beyond, you know, the band-aid of, hey, you know, personal wellness, go for it. It'll make life better. You know, we have a lot to look at when it comes to how do we achieve that. Absolutely. I mean, you all bring up very interesting points about the historical, but then also the cultural aspects of wellness, exactly like you just said, Dana. Like it's not, it's not a one size fits all concept, mm-hmm. even though when trying to implement wellness programs or initiatives in organizations, we kind of have to make it at least somehow 
available to a large, if not hopefully all, but if not a large group of people. So how, what are some ways in which we can deal with both those two concepts together that one, it is not a one size fits all, but then at the same time, we kind of have to approach that that way as an organization or do we? Melissa? Yeah, I'd like to address the fact that there are policies and procedures and things that we can do in our workplaces that will address wellness better now. And I'm thinking about residents I work with, for instance, the American Board of Pathology allows only four weeks off a year from training. Otherwise, people have to extend their time. There are specialties that now allow 12 weeks off to deal with family issues, whether that's having a baby or taking care of an ill parent. And people from historically marginalized communities disproportionately are caring for other family members while they're going to school, whether it's laboratory professional school or medical school. And they have these additional burdens to be unable to take time off to take care of personal health issues or family health issues is really crippling. And when we add into this, the debt load for training, whether it's laboratory professional school, medical school, graduate school, individuals from communities that have not had wealth built in their families are also taking care of family members. The stress of taking unpaid leave to manage a family issue is disproportionately high for these individuals. And this is something we can address right now. We could extend our FMLA for, for people in training. We could provide paid for parental and medical leave. We could increase the leave for people who are not immediate family, but are part of the extended family. We could have debt forgiveness programs. We could have loans, low-cost loans, more widely available. We could take areas where we really need people. We have very few laboratory professionals in rural areas. We could develop policies at the governmental level to forgive debt for people who go and serve for a while in some of these underserved areas. We need a national coordinated approach to address our workforce needs. We have not enough people graduating as laboratory professionals or pathologists to meet the healthcare needs of our nation. And we need to couple that with ways to make this training more affordable and sustainable for people who come from backgrounds without wealth or with additional responsibilities, such as traveling annually to another country to help care for aging parents. This is a critical issue for us. Amen to uh, what Melissa just said. And, I, and, I, and to what you were talking about, Lodi, uh, that something that can have access to everyone. Uh, and I think we would look at our... Uh, Young population, what I'm talking about is uh, child care, and then we look at that elderly. Why aren't many healthcare organizations having on-site daycare? That is something you can offer to everyone. And I think it would have been very important during the pandemic because children are out of school. If you have those, there are things that we have, when we have the finances now that need to be repurposed, that could have just help and address and I think what's, we have all these great ideas, just like Melissa just said, but what, what are we lacking? We have, it seems like that strength, that initiative to make it happen is always, it seems like the small minority voices have the most power. It seems like that the small voices are what's is stopping us on a national level are doing some of the things that we all agree that can help everyone and is baffling. And I think we know what we need to do, but where is that force or where is it going to come from to make it happen? Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, also seeking contributions or insights from others is really important. 
you know, to say, you know, well, we're going to create this program for you because we feel like this will help you in your personal wellness. But, you know, I've heard from colleagues, I don't need any more yoga classes. For example, you know, I didn't ask for that. But where I do need help is, you know, in childcare and leave and uh, tuition reimbursement. I know for, you know, speaking from a perspective of a laboratory professional, you know, we're told that, you know, if we want to move up the career ladder or advance into leadership, you know, we need to go back to school and get more degrees and more training, but that costs money. And if we're not getting the salaries that commiserate with the ability to maintain a certain standard of living and support our families while we pursue uh, higher degrees or our graduate education, and then, you know, where do we get that support from? And that support is not always accessible, especially by those who are of marginalized populations who may have limited access. And so, you know, really reaching out to people and communities and going, what is it that you need in order to not just survive, but thrive? We don't want to lose you from this profession into another one, which we are seeing that exodus, I would say, from the lab into other professions, such as nursing, because they see more opportunity, they see more access to scholarships, they see more, I would say, cohesiveness as a profession, and, you know, really establishing and fighting for, you know, those higher salaries or those increased wages or benefits, what have you. And so we don't want to keep losing people, especially since we've already invested so much in terms of time, education, training, preparation. So what are we doing and asking them, you know, what is it that you need and actually providing or attempting to provide anyway what they need, meeting them in their area of need, rather than, you know, kind of doing the guesswork of, you know, we think this is what will help you or we think this is what will benefit you. And I think for any lab professional I've spoken with, you know, they're like, we just want to have a voice in it. You know, we want to feel like we're contributing and that we're being heard, that we're seen and heard because we already don't feel seen and heard enough as is, especially in areas such as, you know, wellness me to us. I think those are all such incredibly important points, Dana, that we really need to listen to our workforce. They know what they need. Our frontline workers know what they need. And we don't need to micromanage people. These are people who are creative. These people have worked really hard. They have great ideas. They know what they need. I also was so struck at the annual meeting recently when there was a session on COVID and how it impacted organizations. And Donna Castelloni talked about the fact that she's in a big New York laboratory. They recognized that their workforce were going to have to grapple with homeschooling their children while going to work. And they flexed their work days. So instead of working a 40-hour week with five days a week, they moved it so people could work three 13-hour days. And I thought that why does it take a crisis for us to come up with solutions that would help families manage the commuting time, the schooling, taking care of family members. We need creative solutions like this. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be innovative and thinking outside of the box. And yeah, that's a great point, Melissa. I will say I've obviously been off the bench for a while now, but yeah, all the all the points you brought up, Dana, that was very much a thing even for me a decade ago in the lab. You know, why would I get a master's when I would only really get another 25 cents an hour? You know, it's it's tough. And, you know, I think laboratory administration and hospital administration needs to be aware that this is why we're losing people are not the only reason, but it's it's a reason. Absolutely. I will say that I felt I heard a lot of frustration. I attended a few sessions with laboratory professionals uh, at the annual meeting. And yeah, there's those frustrations are very much present and still there and they need to be addressed. 
100%. So I want to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about wellness and DE&I issues kind of globally, like what would we need like on a nationwide policy scale, policy scale or even a statewide policy scale. I kind of want to bring this a little bit closer to home and ask you guys, what does personal wellness mean for you in this arena? Like, what do you guys need? What do you guys see in your own lives that you would need to make your professional lives and um, DE&I issues more relevant to you? Mm, I need tuition reimbursement. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> preach, Dana. But preach. Seriously, I do. Um, <laughs> no, I would say really it's, um, I think the work that we are starting to do, especially by establishing formal committees or commissions that are centered around DEI initiatives, because I think creating that sense of belonging or sense of community is so important. And that was the beauty of even being able to attend the annual meeting and see other people who are in the same role or in the same space that, you know, look like you, sound like you, can commiserate with your experience, you know, and and that in itself is a part of wellness, you know, just being able to see yourself in others and for others to be able to see themselves in you and being able to share those experiences, those barriers and challenges that we may have been dealing with, you know, not just during this pandemic, pre-existing conditions, I would say, even prior to the pandemic, when it comes to inclusiveness and not just, you know, speaking to an organization per se, but, you know, as a profession and as a healthcare team across the board. But I would say also just being aware of, you know, what wellness may look like for you is not going to look the same for me. And, you know, culturally, I can even look to how we have certain stigmas or I would say things that are taboo that we, you know, as I would say, as a Black woman that, you know, I have to combat within my own community, such as, you know, mental health awareness. You know, I've had this discussion with some colleagues and some friends recently, some don't believe in seeking out therapy, whereas others do. And it goes back to, you know, having that stigma related to that, that, you know, especially for those who may be spiritual, that may say, you know, God is my counselor. That's who I confide in. That's who I, you know, seek. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But we shouldn't shame each other if someone says, hey, I need more resources. I need more help, you know, more help in terms of my overall holistic well-being, which includes that mental health piece. And so just being able to talk about that more openly, I think even as a profession, because that speaks to our cultural norm as a laboratory medicine community, that, you know, we talk more, I feel like sometimes physical health, because we want you to be physically present and showing up to do the work. But also mental health is such a huge piece of that. And it really ties into that overall picture of physical and, you know, mental health and wellness. And so I think we need to bring that up more, talk about it more, the challenges and uh, issues that we're facing when we talk about mental health and, um, just not make it so, you know, like standoffish that we don't want to talk about that or bring that into the fold. Yeah. Kelly, if I can springboard off what Dana was saying, since you asked it of uh, uh, personal feelings, and I too, it was at the ASCP uh, meeting that, especially as an African-American male, I've gone in many workspaces where I've been the only African-American, especially male, because healthcare is more or less dominant by females. So to go there and see other colleagues, and I remember when I was presenting and I saw Dana and her husband 
out there in the audience and providing that support, that was very personal and very meaningful for me. It was more new experience. I have presented many times at other places, but and usually I'm only the dark face in the building. And so it is surprising, and I had to recognize and acknowledging how important that was to me, how that helped with my wellness, it helped me feel that I was part of that community, what I had to say was important, and that, and that continued support of acknowledgement that, hey, I see you and you are important. On a personal level, that contributes to our wellness. Sometimes it's hard to put it into words, but that's very meaningful for me. And it just so happens, as soon as I got back, I'm going to as I said earlier, I'm part of the DEI community here at Centera uh, at Norfolk General Hospital, and they asked me to present. So I had to present on some of the things that I saw at ASCP, and then also on the terminology that we were using. And one of the meetings that happened right after our meeting was at the transgender transgender presentation. That was a very powerful meeting uh, for me, the topics that they presented. And I brought that back also that we're taking a look at some of the things in our, uh, we use EPIC as our EMR. We're taking a look at how we can formulate that so that we can be more inclusive on some of those check boxes that we use when we're registering our patients and our clients. So it is surprising even to me as much, much as I've tried to learn and continue to learn that that little thing there to see others out there and have that support is definitely contributes to my own personal wellness. I'm in a course called Equity Matters. Latanya Norwood and I are the ASCP team members representing ASCP. And we had two very interesting lectures on whiteness as a concept. And really it was about how many white people are just unconscious of the fact that we have a Eurocentric or you know American and Europe white culture centered view of the universe. And one of those is the idea of many white people think in terms of individualism, that achievement and health is an individual thing. This is actually not the dominant understanding if you look at the globe. Most people only they see the community. And the position of a person inside a bigger community, which includes the environment, it includes the relationship to the great spirit or to God, whatever term you want to use for that, something much greater than ourselves. And so the concept of personal wellness is really in many ways comes out of that that Eurocentric view that if I'm well, everything's okay. But climate change is reminding us that no. Actually, we are so linked and tied and woven into the fabric of our globe and our global communities. So I I can't imagine my personal wellness outside of that. I have many healthy habits. I eat really well. I exercise. I meditate. I exercise twice a day. I'm much more than most people because I have ADHD. I have to. My health plummeted during the pandemic because the amount of stress I was experiencing from the anguish of the suffering of others truly affected my health, but it affected all of our all of us. We're all anguished between the racial violence that was emerging on video, which is, of course has been there for a long time, but was really in our faces this year, the political polarity tension around COVID, many of us have experienced death of family or friends. This is this has huge impacts, even if an individual has not herself been sick. We are we're not islands. 
And so I actually find the idea of personal wellness almost difficult to wrap my head around because I can't understand my health outside the context of my interactions with others. I just can't. It's a foreign concept to me. I think you make a really great point, Melissa, and I'm going to kind of piggyback off of you. Just I'm going to answer my own question, I guess, like what I think personal personal wellness is. And I think it's kind of, I tend to look at it as one of those things of um, putting on my own oxygen mask before I help other people. Like I can't help you thrive if I'm not thriving myself in terms of, of mental health and and taking care of myself. Like you said, you know, I got to, I exercise, I eat well, and I'll, obviously I'm getting personal benefit from that. But if I'm taking care of myself, then I can also have compassion for others then. So yeah, it's definitely like a global thinking and not purely selfish reasons that I, you know, work out twice a week or whatever. Absolutely. And I think that ties in with our, you know, code of ethics as a profession as well. You know, it's not just about duty to the profession or just duty to our colleagues, but also duty to society. And so I think that's already, you know, embedded in that, you know, we should have global thinking in terms of, you know, not just who our work impacts, but also, you know, how does wellness impact us as a community and, you know, beyond that into society? Yeah, I think globally, act locally kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So what are some other cultural assumptions that can negatively affect the ability of marginalized groups to really fully participate in and and thrive and have social, societal, and organizational wellness? If if I can, and it goes back to what um, Melissa was talking about earlier, and it's that acknowledgement that we are not doing this alone. I remember back when uh, former President Obama said, made a comment saying that you didn't build that. And that was misconstrued in the press uh, because what he was saying, if we can understand that, is that we didn't build all this was here when we got here. Our success was dependent upon all these things that were here when we arrived. You no, know, we were when we arrived here as a baby, we had nothing. We had to depend upon our parents. We had to depend upon the schools that were already there. We had to depend upon all the structures that were already there. And he was trying to say, you got to give acknowledgement to that, that what we have and what you became was dependent upon others. So it's not taking from you. It's just an acknowledgement of how you got to where you are. And that is what we are struggle with today is that myth of the quote unquote the self-made man or the self-made person. That is a myth. Going back into the Western, the movies that come out of Hollywood about that loner going out went out west and tamed the West. That is not true. First of all, there were people already there. And if you really look back and look at the historical record, you see that it was about community. Everybody depended upon everybody else. So we have that ingrained in the fabric of American culture, that individualism, that you should be able to do it by yourself. And that is a myth. That is not true. And so we are fighting against, you know, as you question loaded, we are fighting against that. It is almost hardwired into our society. And so when you start talking about community, talking about let's do this together, those that uh, do not want to accept that reality uh, brings up those uh, triggers of socialism or this anything to put it so-called in a negative light. I don't know how we get past that because I, I, I like to say a lot of this is about power. 
and those that have power do not give it up willingly or easily. And so when you start talking about community, you're talking about sharing. And many of those who have power don't want to share that, even because they believe, they think, they believe in we have a zero-sum game. It's, you know, if I get something, that means you're going to have less. If I share something with you, I'm going to have less. And it's really not uh, like that. It's an exponential growth if we can all work together. So I remain hopeful, but I, I, it's a hard battle, I think, in front of us to overcome that because it's been going on for so long. I, one of the things that, that I never realized when I went to college, I couldn't, I did not have the skills because I'd gone to a little girls' private school for high school. I didn't have the skills to thrive in my pre-med courses, so I had to drop out of them. I later went back and and slowly got the skill set I needed going to University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. So I had the firsthand experience, although I came from privilege enough to be able to go to a private school, I did not have the sufficient skill set to thrive in STEM fields. So in some ways, I have this ironic or paradoxical experience that really mimics that of people who come from a little tribal high school or some urban high schools where the skill sets they're taught are simply not sufficient to thrive in a university in a STEM field. So that's something that really informs my perspective. It's not a level playing field in terms of the entry, addressing Daryl's point about individualism. People don't all have the same quality of elementary school education, middle middle school education, high school education. So it's not simply how intelligent people are or how motivated they are. If they don't have the skill sets, if they don't have the financial ability to go to school, it's not happening. But ironically fell into something that's been really helpful for me as a leader, which is I became a history major. And, you know, addressing Daryl's point, another element that is a dominant element in our culture is a lack of historical perspective. People just don't know history and they don't want to know it. Sometimes they're viewing, understanding history of the United States, learning about the genocide of our indigenous peoples, learning about slavery. They're viewing that as somehow radically subversive. In a way, it is subversive because it's altering the paradigm of our thinking. And that way it subverts or changes our understanding of reality. So that's why people are so afraid of it. But part of that lack of historical understanding is that people don't recognize that, first of all, although Americans with slavery history supposedly got the vote at the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, the reality is that Black people in most parts of the United States didn't have the access to the vote until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. And even now, that right is being threatened in many places. Native Americans were not viewed as American citizens until 1924. So if we look at the legal structures, the laws underlying our real estate taxes, the way schools are funded, what is the Federal Reserve, so many elements of our society that we consider almost as a given as Americans, that these are, this is our laws. These are laws that were not written by what will very soon be the majority of Americans their ancestors. So we don't recognize that our perspectives legally, our structures, our policies and procedures really stem from a particular cultural perspective. And that if we don't understand that history, then we don't understand why 
this doesn't fit or address the needs of many people in our culture and in our workplace. And to me, this is very obvious as a history major, but sadly, um, when I say this, people like Daryl will say, well, think I'm a socialist or think I'm, you know, this angry radical. This is not radicalism. This is simply factual information. Just look at the dates when people were allowed to vote. Look at how few people have been able to vote. And then of those who vote, how many became legislators where they could actually make laws or change laws? This is the way our system works. If you do not have access to the power to make and create policies, procedures, and laws, you're essentially excluded. So when we're talking about inclusion, back to Dana's really important point, we have to ask people, what do they need? We, people have to be empowered to participate, to change procedures, policies, laws, to make them serve all populations better than they currently do, because they don't currently serve all of us. They don't serve us well currently. I mean, it's very clear from our discussion, from everything that all of you have shared so far, that wellness is such an all-encompassing, complex process. And that even though there are those personal and individual aspects to it, that it really is a collaborative approach. So when trying or working towards implementing organizational wellness, where do we begin? Like, what are some of the best practices to address that from into actual programs in our workplaces and our communities? Like, how can we create these safe spaces for our employees to dedicate to their wellness? Because that, I mean, that's ultimately the goal, right? That we don't have, because as you've all shared, wellness is not this separated entity. There are so many different dimensions to wellness that we take to work and sometimes involve work. So how can we create this space where everybody just feels great? Where we started here uh, a year or so ago, we did exactly what we were talking about there, Lodi. Uh, we had, we conducted safe spaces. We had safe spaces and for the entire system. We have over 28,000 employees in, in, in our healthcare system. And we had these safe spaces that occurred, you know, at different times where we can begin that conversation around DEI, you know, how do people feel basically really about our organization in concert with that, those safe spaces, we sent out some surveys. Do you think we're an inclusive organization? How do you see, Centera, how are we doing? We had some interesting responses. The response rate, of course, it wasn't as high as we wanted. The safe spaces was more popular than actually the responses from the survey. I think people had gotten accustomed to the Zoom and being able to talk, and uh, that was very popular, being able to uh, voice your opinion in, quote, unquote, a safe space. Then, and, but then we had the survey, and that's where we really uh, began, at least for our organization, where we started. But we're taking some of those suggestions and what can we do with them? As I'm listening to our panel and talking, I can see, at least for me, that a lot of our wellness circles around finances. Uh, why? Because finances, being financial aid, give you choices. When we have our choices, that's when we're happier. But we have choices. We feel empowered then. And how we live and how the world works now is based upon uh, finances. That is a hard sell. Or, you know, when you start talking about money to the, those in power, that's when you really, they give, they give you the side eye. So 
but that's what we're talking about when we're talking about uh one of the issues we're talking about uh child care you know what, what the resources the education as dana was talking about wait that, that's finances again uh we've been trying to repurpose some money that we've got in these pots here at Centera. Uh, use, utilize them to respond to some of the things, some of the uh, suggestions that came out of our survey and out of our safe spaces. One of the things that we're still challenged, and I think we challenge as a nation, is that you really can't legislate kindness. So we kind of segue into another part. We were talking about those microaggressions, you know, being kind to one another. However, I think that's where we first, a good place to start is looking or trying to address some of the financial concerns that impact wellness and how employees make it day to day. And I have so much to respond to a lot of what you said there, Derek, it's all spot on, but I think it's definitely creating those safe spaces, but I think it really comes from leadership down, you know, it is, it's a trickle because if, you know, if employees don't feel safe, if they don't feel like they can express their concerns or their wants or needs, that speaks to their wellness without fear of retaliation, without, you know, threat against their job security or threats against, you know, potential promotions that they've been working so long and hard toward, then, you know, they may refrain from sharing, you know, actually my work-life balance is, you know, miserable, or I'm thinking about leaving, um, not just leaving this uh, organization, but leaving the profession altogether. And these are the whys. Whereas if we've created that safe space or that comfortable space of allowing them, giving them that empowerment, as you said, to open up and say that these are my needs and we can have that reality check where we get out of our own way as leaders and say, you know what, we can actually meet you in that area of need. You know, let's let's go ahead and work towards that. So even as you mentioned that reallocation of funds, you know, we thought we needed that money to go this way when really if we put it this way. It'll actually help support, you know, wellness for our colleagues, for our peers, for our whoever, you know, just that willingness to really simply get out of your own way and get out of the thought of, you know, well, this is how it's always been. This is how we've always done it. This has always been our expectation, you know, why, you know, and then they make it generational where you add more division than cohesion, you know, well, it's the millennials, it's Gen X, it's Gen Z, it's Gen, like, no, it's people and times changing and times evolving. And, you know, you look at inflation and everything else that's happening in the world and like, no, I just need this. And, you know, how can we meet people in that area of need, especially if we have the financial means to help meet them in that area of need? You know, once again, it's not just about the individual, but looking at community and how we want to help, you know, not just recruit and retain to our organizations and to our profession and our fields. You know, we want people to want to stay. We want people to want to join. But what are we doing to help, you know, promote and support that? And so, and then even making them feel like they have a route for um, filing a complaint or sharing an issue regarding experiencing microaggressions in the workplace. I shouldn't be expected to endure them. And then when I bring them to your attention, I receive gaslighting or whatever, you know, or, you know, well, we'll have a talk about it. And then it's swept under the rug. You know, we need to address the elephants in the room. And if that elephant's name is microaggression, if that elephant's name is, you know, lack of tuition reimbursement, I'm gonna keep on bringing that up. If the elephant is lack of childcare resources or just lack of lactation rooms, I just brought that up 
you know, just to inquire about that for, you know, faculty, staff, students, what does that look like? Just, you know, for our pregnant and expecting mothers, you know, that's a part of DEI as well. And them having that balance and not feeling like they have to make the decision of, well, I just won't breastfeed, or maybe I need to look for another employer. So I have that option to where I can, you know, still, you know, provide nutrition for my child and a means of, you know, keeping a roof over our head. And so I, I don't think people have major ask, you know, I don't know a medical lab scientist asking for a million dollar salary per year, you know, be great. But, you know, I think there's a lot of feasible ask that we are not meeting. And, you know, just being able to come into work and not feel like you're going to have to endure a microaggression or any type of transgression against you. And it doesn't receive any type of follow up. You know, just, you know, what seems small to others is big to the individual. So once again, where can we meet people where they are? And we do have the power within our organizations to implement and impact those changes. I cannot agree with you more, Dana. Absolutely. Uh, Like I said, it's been a while since I've been on the bench, but back when I was on the bench, perhaps unsurprisingly, I was always a squeaky wheel and I was always the one bringing up stuff and because I'm not one to not voice my opinion on things. And back then it was very much like, you know, Hey, if you don't like it, leave, you know, like you, you're choosing to work here. You don't have to work here. You can move. And I do think that we've come to a place as a profession where, and not just a profession, I think this is obviously at least nationwide and maybe worldwide, you know, so many workers are saying, you know what, this workplace is not optimal and it's actually terrible. And I don't actually have to work here. I can work somewhere else. And now administrators are having to deal with that you know, it's no patients longer are having to deal with that. And, and patients are having to deal with that. Like we, it's no longer a viable response to say, well, Hey, if you don't like it, you can leave because people are leaving and they're not going back. So I think you're making great, great points. So I guess my, my next question to you guys is what are some exact steps we can make in the workplace to address these for our students, to address this for the laboratory workforce? One of the things I think we really need to address is I can't tell you how many institutions I worked for that viewed a payroll as a cost center. And in fact, everyone, I mean, read good to great, read almost every great business or leadership book. And they talk about your most valuable resource are your people. And that's for our healthcare organizations. It's our patients, our patients needs, and also our staff. And so if we're bean counting and keeping salaries and benefits low because we're viewing our laboratory staff as a cost center, how distorted and wrong that is. And and it reminds me of, of Stephen Covey's book, The Eighth Habit, where he talks about how organizations are perfectly aligned to get the results that they get. Because if your assumption is that your staff is a cost center, you're not going to invest in your staff. But we need to invest in the people in our laboratories, as Dana said. And the other thing I point out really think is very important is there's something called symbolic diversity, equity, inclusion, where you have the one black man on your staff in your staff pictures on your webpage, but that individual actually doesn't get tuition reimbursement assistance, et cetera. That's symbolic diversity and inclusion. That's not real diversity and inclusion, but similarly, we have a parallel symbolic wellness. They'll give you a yoga class. They'll give you a, a little gym at the bottom of the hospital, but nobody has time to use it because we're all working overtime. And so this is symbolic wellness. And as, as Dana and Daryl have put out and others so well, that 
the real wellness we need are things that help us live our lives better, whether that's tuition reimbursement. They show very clearly that people from historically marginalized groups and women, several of the most important factors to allow people to advance and thrive are being able to attend a meeting. So you want to have some funding to go to a meeting and present. Wouldn't that be good for your lab? Wouldn't that be good for your staff? Yes, of course it would be. Having equal salary for equal work, which honestly still doesn't happen in many organizations. We still don't have equal salary for equal work. And that's not only inequitable, it's frankly illegal. It doesn't take a lot of neuronal power to recognize that we have some really simple things we can do to make life better for all of our workers and for ourselves in our workplaces. Just pay equally for equal work, give people a choice of some benefits, address what people really need, ask people what they really need. This is, this, I, don't, I, I get really upset because I don't think this is difficult to understand or see. And yet so many people are, are focused on the symbolic changes that are really, frankly, quite meaningless. If I made two points on that, Melissa, that you brought up, one, it was about symbolic, but I'm a big proponent of on-site child care, especially if you have a big health care organization. Child care helps everyone because not just young people coming in. We have, you know, grandparents taking care of kids. You know, our families are diverse. <laughs> and if you got child care, especially for a health care organization, not only do you have that added perception of security and people who are credentialed as taking care of your, your, your child, but then it's on site. That means that takes a lot of headache away from that employee because, it, you know, you can drop your children off, going to work and pick them up when you're leaving. That is something that can be offered, as Lodi was talking about, across the, your entire organization, you know, because it affects everyone. And Melissa, you were talking about things that symbolically that reminds me that was recently in the news, uh, uh, it was a hospital in Texas that had just uh, hired a, a DEI director. And, you know, you can imagine all the interviews and things he had to go through to get to that offer. But just before he started, he had some, I guess, some incidents out in the public, you know, uh, in Texas. And that when he came there, he shared that with them. And, you know, these microaggressions and the discrimination. And so they rescinded that offer because he brought it up. So that just lets you know that was just a symbolic move because he wasn't even talking about things that happened at the organization that he saw. He was just talking about life events and let him know that this is real, what you're talking about. And then they rescinded the offer saying that he did not align with the organization. And so that was just an example of what Melissa was talking about, that symbolic moves that some organizations are doing when you're not serious about it. And that uh, as we were talking, Dana was talking about talking about in leadership. That's where it starts up at the top. So then, how can we sell both DEI and wellness to the C-suite? Like, what are our, you know, we? I mean, there are clearly some wellness initiatives that cost money, but there's also a lot that uh, some of them that you have all mentioned that don't cost money. What overall are the costs worth the benefit, and what? Uh, are there even any alternatives if leadership does not accept any DEI or wellness initiatives? We actually, we're at a really good opportune time because almost every organization in the country cannot fill their workforce in the lab. And some are paying enormously higher fees than they would have for a full-time worker by bringing in travelers. So I think if we simply, some of this can be a financial argument. 
that without people, we've, we've had we've had times in the last two weeks where there were not enough phlebotomists to keep up with the laboratory needs for a major medical center. I'm at University of Washington, major medical center. So how does that affect care? When, when you really look at it, people in the lab are absolutely essential for functioning healthcare systems. And so I think the, the COVID has brought us to a great opportunity to point out this is not frosting on a cake. This is the fundamental flower. You know, this is the basis of the cake, if you will. We have got to have investment in our workforce. And that means things that will sustain their health, retain good people, train good people, advance good people. This is nuts and bolts now. And I think if we do not take this pandemic as an opportunity to really advocate for our profession, we've lost a tremendously important chance historically. I completely agree. Although I would not call these sort of initiatives a flower, I'd call it the egg. It's the binder. It all falls apart if we don't have this. Absolutely. So when else was going to say something, well, I was going to mention uh, Melissa was talking about how you loaded your question on how you sell that to C-suite. It's something that we plan often in quality. Being laboratorians, sometimes we don't talk that talk well, that financial talk well. And that's what moves C-suites is those numbers, showing those numbers. And we need to be able to translate what we see almost intangibles into hard numbers. We talk about the cost of quality. We need to show that on paper. The cost of not having employees, the cost of not having phlebotomy. Well, then we had to cancel some surgeries. This We had to move this. We can't do... Show those numbers, show the attrition rate when we're losing these employees, either because they had family changes and we didn't, we weren't offering remote or we had other changes. We didn't have child care. They went somewhere else. Show what we lost. Uh, Lodi and I, part of our presentation, we were talking about the cost of a new employee, thousands and thousands of dollars, not only the energy that you have lost because, you know, when usually when you get a new employee, that adds energy to the dynamic of your workplace. But they're lost. That's a relationship they're lost. So that impacts us. And then you can change the numbers and show that, hey, well, we had to do these changes in the laboratory. The employee didn't stay. We left after 90 days. If you can change those those activities into some hard numbers, that goes a long way into selling that C-suite to get on, on board on on some of your initiatives. And I think that speaks to looking at our processes. You know, if we're doing exit interviews, what do those questions look like? Is it really giving us the data that we need? You know, not just a, you know, well, where are you going? What position? What's the new salary? But also, you know, why are you leaving? You know, can you give us some specific examples, especially as we can correlate that back to data? And I think as laboratorians, we can't be afraid of having those data conversations. We generate data. This is what we do for a living. (laughs) And don't let the financial piece scare you off. It's just as, you know, Daryl already mentioned and Melissa as well, as far as that, you know, being able to speak the language that is needed in that C-suite so that they can hear us. It's all strategy. And it's not about, you know, going in and just simply making our demands and what is perceived as coming from an emotional space. Like, here goes the lab again. Like, no, let me show you the data. I'm going to show you the numbers. And also, let me add to the numbers how many programs that are accredited in our area. Oh, wait, there's none. So we don't have a pipeline coming in. 
if you feel that we could just easily hire more people. You know, the same workforce issues that we're seeing on this side, we're on the education side. We need more faculty. We don't have enough faculty. We don't have enough programs. The number of learners that we're putting out right now do not meet the number of vacancies. And so once again, you know, let's look at this from a number stance of, you know, not just who's leaving, but who we may be able to pick up, which is really limited to none. And so you really have to bring that data and leverage that information. And whether it's reaching out to organizations such as ASCP to say, you know, do you have any supporting data that we can bring into the C-suite so you don't feel like you have to generate that data yourself? These organizations may have this information already for you that you can take to support and substantiate your case. You have made an excellent segue to my last question. I could actually probably talk about this with you guys for another hour, but I do kind of want to wrap this up by asking how professional organizations like ASCP, how can we help bring these sorts of initiatives, the DEI and wellness initiatives to workplaces and how can we work for our members to help make that happen? So Dana, you had said data. Daryl, Melissa, do you guys have any other thoughts? Well, actually it was so interesting so to me, I've just got an idea from what Dana just talked about that we already have our, our annualized workforce salary and vacancy surveys very helpful. Our group at University of Washington uses that to show to C-suite the number of people being trained in particular areas and how the nationwide gap in trainees and, and people, how most places are struggling to get people to staff these areas. That's very helpful. It also helps for some benchmarking for salaries. But I wondered, Dana, maybe we should include something about exit interview data as well. That would actually be very, very helpful to if we added some questions. We also did a, a burnout wellness and job satisfaction survey, which was done before the pandemic, it may be time to redo it in the context of the pandemic and worsening challenges with workforce. But I think some of these questions, it could be, we could add some of these strategic questions that will allow us to have stronger databases. We have such a large number of people who participate in the survey that it provides very good quality data. Yeah, and I agree. I really like Dana's idea of the exit interview, looking at those questions that you asked when a person decides to move on and go somewhere else. Situation here, I can tell you in Virginia, it's pretty dire as far as uh, uh, laboratory workers. We have a big system. What we end up doing here is cannibalizing ourselves. You see that, you know, employees moving just within the system, going from one laboratory to another, but it, the lack is still there. I don't have any concrete ideas. Uh, one of the things I like what ASCP, uh, I'm really stoked on what ASCP has been doing. Matter of fact, when I mentioned it to our DEI committee that I was doing this podcast, they were like, they got excited. They wanted to hear it. They say, will that be available for them to, to share and to listen? So I think the things that our laboratory organizations are doing is important. It gives that credibility behind it. It helps us speak with a, a louder voice that the data is already out there. I think it, is incumbent upon each individual laboratory or organization, those individuals there to get it together and to uh, put the work in to present it in a fashion to make some of these initiatives a reality. Dana happens currently to be our chair of the Council for Laboratory Professionals. And traditionally, that's been a really important focal point for ideas and also challenges to be brought to ASCP. We really, we're not top down. We really hear from our members and our initiatives come from our members. So there are opportunities to 
work together to make changes at the at the legislative and advocacy level. But also, I think this kind of podcast, even just sharing best practices, we need to learn from each other. None of us is, has all the ideas. And ASCP is not top-down. We really need to hear from the members. We need to hear from our workforce. What, is it, what are the things we're going to focus on strategically? Is it debt forgiveness? Is it some low-cost interest, low-interest or no-interest loans? These are kinds of things that we can, we can develop strategic initiatives around this in collaboration as well with our federated partners of the, of the Board of Certification. That's a federation of laboratory professional groups. We can work together. We are stronger together. But I think Dana really is, is a good one to have um, the final word on this topic because she's in the point of, of um, responsibility and power right now on this. Dun, dun, dun. It's all on you, Dana. <laughs> well, I would just say that, you know, as I've heard from members, um, especially in attending the annual meeting, once again, referring back to that, you know, we're approachable. Our ears are open. We are here for you. And, you know, whether that's reaching out to us, you know, via email, if you see us in person, via phone, and it's not just the Council for Laboratory Professionals. We also have, you know, the Resident Council. We have the Pathology Council. We have our commissions. You'd be amazed to see and learn who represents or who is a representative from your area, or from your region, who is serving in one of these capacities. But all for any one of us, we represent the voice of our profession. And so, you know, reach out to us, let us know what you need. And if there's something we can help or contribute to from an organizational point, rather, you know, we champion that we give voice to that and we um, get together with other like-minded people to um, come up with things and ideas and plans to um, hopefully help those things come into fruition. Because to Melissa's point, we are stronger together. We don't operate in a silo at the heart of what we do, at the passion of what we do. We want to help and contribute positively to our community, especially our laboratory community. Well, thank you, Dana, for bringing us home in such a great, great way. Once again, obviously, I could talk about this for the next hour, but for today, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank all of you guys for participating. This was an excellent conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely, and I hope our listeners do as well. Speaking of those listeners, I want to remind you guys that, one, you can earn CME and CMLE by listening to this podcast. Just visit the ASCP store on our website at ASCP.org. Tell everyone about the podcast, and you can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. 